So we are starting our Advent series. So I'm going to intro that first. Um, so just real quick, raise of hands. You know, raise your hand if Advent is something you're used to or familiar with or kind of part of your background. No one, apparently. <laughs> okay. Very different than first service. A lot of people in first service are very familiar with Advent. So Advent is basically the season within kind of the church Christian world where you take the weeks before Christmas and really just prepare yourself to receive Christmas, you know, to have a right state of mind, a right state of thinking, you know, to be prepared in the right way. And so you can do it a number of different ways. Like there's no correct way to do Advent. Sometimes you look at the prophecies. Sometimes you look at like the different birth narratives. Like there's a number of different ways that you can do it. We are going to follow the Bible projects kind of outlined for that. And so they've done it according to themes. So what we're going to do is I'm going to show you a video in a second. We're going to do their little reading that they've prepared for that theme. And then our sermons for the Advent series are just going to be deeper dives into those themes. So we got a video for you to watch, so you can pay attention to that. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace. 
process, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Let me read for you uh, the writing that they've prepared. It says this. Peace, biblical peace, means to make complete or to restore to a state of wholeness. The advent of Jesus is the arrival of peace. He not only made peace with God for us, but he became our peace. Through the advent of Jesus, not only are we no longer in conflict with God, but much more God has restored us to a state of wholeness. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word now and we dive into this concept of peace, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to what you have to say uh, to show us uh, what it means to understand the peace that you brought into this world. In your name, amen. So uh, I'm going to stop using that word peace now because peace kind of is very, you know, it carries certain American definitions or it's very simplistic. And I'm going to start using the word shalom. And shalom is, we'll see when we get to the definition, it's a much more broad term. It carries a lot of different ideas with it. And that's much more accurate to what we're trying to describe this morning. Um, but the first off, you know, why even spend any time talking about this? Why would we devote a Sunday to the idea of shalom? Now, if you think about, you know, central themes in the Bible, probably, you know, the one that comes to mind, you'll think of the love of God. In the opening prayer, Neil prayed, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. We would all say that love is, you know, a central concept in the Bible. And, you know, depending on what your Google search says or who's counting, you will see that love comes up in the Bible 550 times. So, a lot, right? I mean, that's, that's in there pretty consistently. Now, if you were to look into how often does shalom come up in the Bible, it comes up at least 551 times. I say at least because, again, depending on who's counting and the words that they're using, it might be as high as 556, but that doesn't even account for the word Jerusalem, which is city of peace, and that would add another like 800 times. And so what I'm just trying to point out is, you know, regardless of the actual numbers, is that shalom is a, a central core idea of the Bible, right? It is on every page. It is as relevant as the love of God. And yet, it's probably something that we don't talk about a lot, you're not super familiar with, maybe you're, you know, this will be the first time you've ever heard this outside of just kind of the general Hebrew greeting that's attached to that term, but it's a, it's a very central idea. And the reason it's part of our Advent series, as Tim Mackey alluded to in the video, is you see that it's very central to the Christmas story. So I'm going to read for you guys some verses that are, are generally associated with Christmas. A couple of these are in the Old Testament, a couple of them are in the New Testament, but you'll see that, that shalom is a central idea in them. So the first one is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or Prince of Shalom. Of the increase of his government and of Shalom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and righteousness from this time, from, yeah, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or Isaiah 53, 5, it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us Shalom. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is now from uh, Luke 
1, 76 through 79. This is John the Baptist's dad prophesying about what John the Baptist was going to do. And he says this, And for you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of shalom. And then the last one, the famous one, the Charlie Brown one, Luke 2, 9 through 14, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth shalom amongst those with whom he is pleased. So you can see at the core of who Jesus is and at the core of the Christmas stories is shalom. Jesus is going to be a prince of shalom. He is going to establish never-ending shalom on the earth. By his wounding, shalom comes into existence. John, who prepares people for you know, receiving Jesus, one of the things that's going on is, is he's describing Jesus' ministry as actually people are going to walk in the path of shalom. You know, what Jesus comes to offer is a way of life built on shalom, that they can walk in this. And then when the angels show up, they're making a declaration. Hey, shalom is here. Shalom is now on the earth again. Shalom is now available again. So um, now, so you know, that's why it's central to Christmas. That's why it's part of the Advent series. What we want to do is start understanding what this word means. So we're going to use a lot of different definitions, a lot of different descriptions, and some images. And the idea I'm trying to point out is that they are all shalom. The way that English and Greek work is you usually, you know, take something and you try and get more specific. You know, we've all heard the sermon, you know, here are the different words for love in the Bible, and it gives you a really specific, you know, way of understanding that. Hebrew is the opposite. It is one word that has like 90 things attached to it, and you are supposed to keep all of those things in your mind at the same time. You know, it's trying to, you know, paint a giant picture. All of these things go together. So from the video, you know, the words that Tim Mackey was using is he was describing it as peace, as wholeness, as completeness, as perfect, as people lacking strife and working together. You know, you can add to that. You can add wellness. You can add harmony. And the point I'm just trying to point out is all, it's all of these things at once. You know, it's not like shalom is, well, sometimes it's wholeness, and other times it's people working together. It's all of those ideas at the same time. It's trying to put all of those ideas together for you, that you don't divide them up. You actually keep them together when you talk about shalom. Um, one, uh, when you start reading uh, different, you know, theologians that write about shalom and study shalom, they come up with some definitions to try and put it all together. So I'm going to read you two of them. So one says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. And then the second one, shalom is the interconnected harmony in a way that brings flourishing and blessing to every aspect of creation. So I'm going to read those one more time. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom is the interconnected harmony in a way that brings flourishing and blessing to every aspect of creation. So, kind of 
So we got a bunch of words, we've got those definitions in the back of our mind, we understand what they're trying to say with them. So the first thing that those things are trying to point out is who's involved, who's involved. So who's involved in shalom is you've really got three main actors. You've got God, you've got human beings, and you've got creation. And the idea here is that they are all in perfect relational harmony with one another. You know, you've got God to humans and to creation, humans to creation and God, and vice versa, and all mixed together to say they are all in a harmonious relationship with one another. There is no division or animosity or separation between them. They are all together. And then the other thing that's trying to be pointed out in these definitions and in these words that we've been using is, you know, what's going on? What's, what's the dynamic at play here? And so the words that you see or that can kind of summarize what's at play here are flourishing, justice, and delight. Flourishing, justice, and delight. So in shalom, shalom being more of a state of being, a state of the the dynamics in the world is all groups flourish. Your three groups, your God, your humans, and the creation, they are all flourishing. And really what it's trying to say is that there are not winners and losers in shalom, but everyone succeeding together, everyone working together. There is no sense of adversity or competition between the groups. They are in perfect harmony together. They are bonded together. You don't have to worry about any sort of uh, of sense of fear in a state of shalom. There are famous, um, famous prophecies in the Old Testament that are really describing, the shal- uh, describing a state of shalom. They describe uh, seasons where uh, lions lay down with lambs, or infants play on snake dens, or human beings taking their weapons of war and turning them into instruments for farming. And all of those are, are trying to paint a picture of what does flourishing in shalom look like? Is people at peace with one another? Creation at peace with itself, creation at peace with humanity, which then brings us to the idea of justice. So when you hear the word justice, there are, chances are, your mind goes into a specific type of justice that we would call retributive justice, retributive justice. That's the kind of eye for an eye type justice. You know, it's bad people did something and we've got to pay them back. We've got to punish people. We've got to, you know, enforce the rules upon them or punish them or, or that kind of thing. And that's not the kind of justice we're talking about. And really, it's because that, that kind of justice is unnecessary in shalom. You don't have bad people in a state of shalom. It's, a, it's an unnecessary thing. But there is a different kind of justice that is much more common to, uh, to the biblical narrative. And it's the kind of justice that, that God really is, describes as this is a central kind of heart characteristic for himself. And it's the kind of justice that cares for the least of these. When you read Israel's story, God is often saying to Israel, your sense of justice is measured in how you treat what is called the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. How you treat those people is a measure of how you understand justice. How the least of your society are, are treated really shows what you, what you care about, what you, what you think is important. And in a state of shalom, the least of these, whoever is the least of these, they are also flourishing. They're not just getting by, they're not just surviving. They're not just making ends meet. They're, they're flourishing as well. You know, whatever would be considered the least is also important. It also is in a state of flourishing. And then the last word, delight. Delight's the simplest one because it really just means everyone is enjoying this. Everyone has joy. Everyone has happiness. All things are, are working together and flourishing together, and the least are taken care of, and everyone is in this harmonious, perfected relationship with one another. And that's what shalom is supposed to look like. It's all of those things. So 
if you got lost in any of that, one really helpful definition or image, I should say, to think about with shalom is when you read about shalom, they will often say, shalom is like a tapestry. You have all these threads that are beautiful in their own right, and they are interwoven together and connected together, and they produce something beautiful together. You know, and, that, and that's the picture of shalom, everything woven together to create something beautiful. Right? That's the thing that if you, if you can't keep all the definitions in your mind, keep the image of the tapestry in your mind. So we actually get a picture of what a shalom state looks like. It's in the Bible. It's in the Garden of Eden. So that's where we're going to turn. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 1. It's the first page, so I'm not going to wait a super long time. Um, and the Garden of Eden is really trying to display for us a shalom state. God's original design for us is shalom. When the three groups are in harmony together and the values are flourishing, justice, and delight. This is what it's going to look like. So the way that Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 start, we're going to bounce around through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, but the way it starts in verses 1, chapter 1, 1 and 2, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what you've got here, you've got heaven, which is God's space. You've got earth, which will, which will be our space, will be man's space. And you've got the Spirit of God hovering over waters. Waters, as you will learn in the Bible, will become symbolic of chaos and evil. And uh, this description of what's going on between these, these two spaces in the water is that it is formless and void. So then what happens is God creates into the universe following a day schedule. Uh, he forms the universe. You know, he creates uh, things like seasons, like stars and sky, like the sun and the moon to mark the different uh, times of day, all of that kind of, those are all ideas of forming. And then he fills all of those things so that it's no longer void. So every, everything has a creature for it. You have birds for the air, you have fish for the sea, you have vegetation for the land, everything's got something. And as God is doing this thing in this day schedule, he declares everything to be good. And then in the last day, we get the creation of humanity. And humans are, our description is a little different. So in chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates us, and the difference with us is that, you know, we're not like any other creation. We are actually in the image of God. And so what that means is that in some ways we are like God, and in other ways we are not like God. There, we have different things uh, that separate us, but we overall represent God into the world. And what God basically says to us is he says, I want you to go out into the world and be like me out in the world. What I would do, you're going to do. And he describes this as filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over it. A distortion that often comes out of those words is sometimes we start to think of that as like, okay, well, so then we dominate, we strip mine, we pollute, we make it serve and work for us. But that's not really what's at the heart of those words. The words that are used for, for have dominion are really more like, royal stewardship type words, is that you're a caretaker. You're someone who's in charge of this, and this is ultimately your kingdom. You need to watch over it and 
care for it. And if you're made in the image of God and you're supposed to be like him, well, then you need to treat it the way that he would have treated it. You need to go out into the earth in the way that he would. Turn your, turn your Bible to chapter 2. We, chapter 2 is a retelling of what we just read, and it's kind of organized around the idea of God breathing life into us. This command from chapter 1, fill the earth, have dominion over it, all that stuff, the version of that in chapter 2 is verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So the word work, or that we've translated work from Hebrew, is abad. And abad literally, literally means to serve and to cultivate. You know, it has servant ideology or a language attached to it. You know, it's the idea that you are, uh, you are someone who is in charge of this and your attitude towards it is whatever its needs are, they go ahead of your own. And so that it flourishes by your, your taking care of it. The word uh, that we've translated as keep is the Hebrew word shamar. And the image attached to shamar, it's the word that's used to describe parents with a newborn infant. The care that they have for a newborn infant, the way that they would hover over it, watch over it, bathe it, feed it, give its every need, be attentive to it whenever it is crying out, all of that kind of stuff. That is the language that's attached to, to what God says our mandate is. And the idea here is really that the earth is your child. You know, you are in charge of this thing. The creation, you are the one who has to watch over it now. And so God gives us this, this mandate to go out into the world like he would. So what then goes on in chapter 2 is, so if chapter 1 is really trying to display for us, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good, we have a problem in chapter 2, and God says it's not good for man to be alone. Adam is presented with all of the creation, and there's no companion for him. There's nothing that complements him the right way. And so God decides to make Eve, and God takes a rib from Adam and builds Eve out of his side. And it's very important to understand that it's out of his side, because what it's trying to show is that she is a suitable companion. She is an equal. She is not any less the image of God than he is. They are co-equal together. She will be described as his helper, but the word that's used for helper is also the word that God uses to describe himself as our helper, right? Like it is, there's dignity attached to this. There's not any sort of inferiority attached to this. And when Adam sees Eve, he says this in chapter 2, verse 23. Then man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed, which is a way to say that there was a harmony between them. There is no sense of insecurity or any sort of adversity. There's just kind of a perfection that is going on there. And so kind of the, the stuff that we didn't read out of the story, but the, the main points of them, is that God then puts them in this garden, and he says, hey, you're going to live here, and you're going to live here with me, and you're going to be fully connected to me, and you're going to be in this intimate relationship with me, and I'm going to provide everything for you. You're not going to have to do anything. You're not going to have to work for anything. I'm just going to make uh, the trees provide for you, and we are going to have this intimate, flourishing relationship me and the creation and you and everything is going to be harmonious and everything is going to be just and everyone's going to flourish and we are going to delight because the Garden of Eden is literally the Garden of Delight, right? It's got all of those shalom ideas. This is the picture of what shalom is supposed to look like. The problem is that the Bible keeps going and we've got chapter three and in chapter three, they ruin it all, right? Sin enters the world. So we're going to talk about what happens when sin enters the world, but when you read, when you're, when you're reading about sin from the, the standpoint of shalom. It is always described 
in a violent way. Sin is a vandalism. Sin is a destruction. Sin is an assault, right? It is seeing shalom as a tapestry and sin coming in and ruining aspects of the tapestry. So the, the garden is designed in this way. They can eat from every tree, but there are two special trees. One is the tree of life, which we don't get a ton of details out, uh, about, except that if they were to eat of the tree of life, they would live forever. The other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're told, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. And what happens is Satan comes into the garden, and he tempts Adam and Eve to believing that God is holding out on them, that he doesn't want them to be like God, that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would instead become like God, and their, their eyes would be open. And they decide, they decide, yes, God is holding out on us. We think we would be better on our own. They eat of the tree, and immediately all the things from the shalom state are broken. They used to be naked and unashamed together, and immediately they hide and clothe themselves, and there's all sorts of levels of insecurity into their relationship. Um, they hide from God, who they used to walk intimately with in the cool of the day. They hear his voice, and it, and it shames them, and it causes fear and anxiety within them. God then, in, in the middle part of chapter 3, explains to them, hey, here, here's what's going to happen. And what happens is things like pain and disease are introduced into the creation because it's now broken. Uh, the dynamics between Adam and Eve, who used to be equals, are now there's going to be a power struggle between them. They're going to be at odds with each other because of the brokenness. And ultimately, uh, or I should back up, the, the creation is not going to just provide for them. They are not going to be able to just kind of rely on it. They're going to have to work it, but thorns and thistles will come in its place. And ultimately, they are cast out of the Garden of Eden to represent the fact that they have been cast out from God. Their sin has separated them from him. And God says that, you know, what the original story was, go out into the world to extend shalom to the rest of the world, right? To cultivate the world in a way that extends the Garden of Eden everywhere else. But now they're being cast out of the garden to protect themselves because God says, if they eat of the tree of life now, they'll live forever in this broken state. We can't have that. And so he's doing it to protect them. But they're sent out. And this then presents kind of the, the main tension point of the Bible. What is God going to do now that he created a, a shalom world and now it's all broken? And the rest of the Bible is really a story of God putting in a plan to redeem and restore and to ultimately reweave the broken tapestry. So obviously that's going to take us to Jesus, but we can't skip over Israel because Israel is going to provide the context for understanding what's really happening with Jesus. And you know you can dive into a number of different things. I just want to highlight a couple things for you. But Israel is God's chosen nation. Their dynamics are that they are supposed to be an on-display nation. They are supposed to be a representation to the world. This is what it's like to be back in relationship with God. Everything that happens with them should model the original intentions out of the Garden of Eden, and that people would see that and say, I want to be part of that too and be drawn into that. So God gives them some special things to kind of display this. So I just want to highlight a few of them. The first is the idea of the tabernacle and the temple. The second is the, the ethics and the laws of Israel. And the third is the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. It's, you know, the ands go together. So the, starting with the tabernacle and the temple. So in the Garden of Eden, you have this unity between God and man. But that gets broken, right? And that's why they're cast out. But God, over the Israel story, reunifies himself to, to Israel in various ways and creates places where they are back together in, a, in, in certain spots. And this is to, in a sense, re-Eden the earth, to take what was broken and reweave it back together. 
And two of the important places where this takes place are the tabernacle, which is the mobile tent of worship during the wilderness years, and the temple, which becomes the, the central place of worship in Jerusalem. And in those two places, you could access God. Prior to this, you could only access God in Eden, and you can't do that anymore. And so these worship centers become the place where people can access God. And while they are accessing God, they can also make restitution for their sins. They can do sacrifices to put them back into a right relationship with him. And you can see kind of the idea that, hey, this was, was this way at one point, it gets broken, here's now a temple that you can put that all back together through. And even within this, so I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year, uh, chances are you got to Exodus and there were like a lot of things about candles and, you know, other things that are, I don't know, I skipped it too. So, uh, but you know, you go, what is the point of this? Um, and all of the, if you actually look at the design of all of the artistry within the temple and the tabernacle, it is all trying to remind them of Eden. So much so that the, the golden lampstand, which gets so many verses, and you go, why is this one lampstand so important? But it is in the shape of the tree of life, and it's placed at the center of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple to remind them, hey, God is taking us back to Eden at some point. What this is all about, it's all about Eden. We're going back there in some way, in some capacity. God is going to put this back together. It's trying to remind them of that kind of stuff. The other thing that God gives them is what we refer to as the law. The law has kind of the ethical rules for Israel. Now, if you know your New Testament, Israel doesn't do a great job with keeping the law. Jesus says the law is not perfect. You know, there are provisions in there because of Israel's hard heart. Paul will tell you that, you know, it's, you know, it was only a guardian. It was going to do a temporary job because it couldn't do a lasting job. But even within that, there were parts of the law that were important. And really, those parts were at their core trying to take Israel in steps back towards the Eden way of life, the steps back towards flourishing justice and delight for people. And so you see special attention in kind of how they ran their society or how they were supposed to run their society. So, you know, one thing, there's special attention to that quartet of the vulnerable. Israel had to care for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. In other nations, you didn't care about those people. You know, if you had a widow, you had an orphan, you had someone who wasn't from your tribe, you had someone who was poor, just let them die. No one cares about them. They're not important. If they were important, they wouldn't be those things. But in Israel, that's not the way it was. God says, oh, actually, your measure of your society is how you're going to care for these people. We're going to build things into our way of doing life that all of those people are always taken care of. So you don't just run through your crops and, and you know, take everything. You actually leave some behind for those people. Another thing you see is you know, their society and their economy was supposed to be built uh, not on exploiting people. So they didn't lend with interest, or they didn't engage in slavery in, in the worst form of the world, right? We, we think of what slavery is in, in uh, American Civil War sort of sense, and that's what slavery was in a lot of the ancient world, but not in Israel. In Israel, they had bond servants, but the idea of the bond servant is that that person would come and serve you for a set time. They knew what they were getting into. And when they left you, you sent them out in abundance. But while they were there with you, you were to weave them into your family. You were to take care of them so that they might get to the end of their term and go, I love these people. I care deeply about these people. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. It was not just about cheap labor. It was not just about, you know, what can I get for myself out of this? It was about taking care of other people. And so you see at the root of a lot of these commands is a desire for justice and flourishing and delight for everyone. Which then brings us to a special subset of the law, which is what was called the, year, the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, or the year of Jubilee. And 
built into Israel's design, God said, okay, here's going to be the schedule for us. Every six years, or for six years, you work the land. Normal stuff, normal farming, all that sort of thing. On the seventh year, you don't do anything. I'm just going to provide for you. You're going to let the land rest, and I'm just going to bring it all to you. You're going to have what you need. Very much echoing the Garden of Eden. You didn't have to work in the Garden of Eden. You don't have to work in Israel if you follow the Sabbath year cycles. Within that, you were not going to, your, your people who were indebted to you, you're going to cancel their debts. You're going to let your, your people go free. You're going to give everyone a reset. And then built into that is that you do that you know, every seventh year on your seventh cycle of that or on the 50th year. It's not really quite sure. Um, there is something called the year of Jubilee. And built into the year of Jubilee was this idea that everyone gets a reset. So what would happen in a 50-year cycle is land would trade hands, people would make bad investments, people would make bad decisions, you know, all the kind of parameters to protect against that kind of stuff. It only goes so far, and eventually, you know, someone is losing out. But God says, hey, every 50 years, we're going to give a reset. Every person, one generation in their life, gets a new start. Everyone gets a do-over. Everyone gets a reset. And it was to prevent people from getting caught in generational poverty and to prevent people from becoming uh, wealthy at the expense of others. God says, well, everyone needs a, a reset at some point, so we're going to build this into our society. And Moses, when he's writing about this, he sees this and he says, I can, I can see what's going on in your brain. Some of you are thinking, well, if every seven years people, I have to lend money to someone and then they don't have to pay it back, I'm just not going to lend money to people. You know? Or I can see some of you going, oh, like, the year of Jubilee is coming up next year. Like, if I borrow a bunch of money now, I'm never going to pay it back, right? You can see the, ex the, the gaming of the system that people will go. And Moses says, hey, don't harden your hearts. Just be generous to people. God has declared to us, there will be no poor amongst us. That means he's going to sort this all out. There are going to be people that game the system, and there are going to be times where you're going to lend and it's not going to come back to you. Don't worry about that. God's going to take care of it. God has declared to us, this is how he's going to work it out. He will work it out. Just keep your heart soft keep your heart generous, and just let God sort out the other stuff. So it is with all of that kind of built in mind that you can now approach Jesus, because Jesus is going to pick up on these themes. So we had the birth announcements. We had the angels declaring to us. One thing that happens is so Jesus kind of lives 30 years. We don't get a ton of info on that. But before he starts his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness. He's tempted. He's prepared. He comes out of the wilderness, and he goes to his hometown and he goes to preach the sermon. And this is what he says in Luke 4, verses 17 through 20. It says this, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim, or sorry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's going on here is you have Isaiah, and he has a vision of the ultimate year of Jubilee, where everything is reset, where everything is restored, where everyone is put back into right relationship with God, where everything in creation is given a new star, where everything is reunited back into harmony. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the one who's doing that. I have done that. I have accomplished. I am the one who brings the ultimate year of Jubilee for everybody. 
And what then goes on in Jesus' ministry is you see years where Jesus is essentially reversing the broken effects of the fall. You know, he is taking where there was vandalism with Shalom, of Shalom and repairing it. And so you see this in, in a variety of ways. You see stories like people who are lame and blind, uh, they are being healed. You know, those things wouldn't have existed in a Shalom world, and so Jesus reverses that. He reweaves them back together. You have stories where uh, you have things like lepers or the woman who was constantly bleeding, and those are, you know, physical, you know, issues, but those are also stories of people who were ostracized from community. Those people weren't allowed to participate in society. They weren't allowed to enter the temple. They could have no access to God. They could not engage with their community, and Jesus heals those people and brings them back in. You know, he, he reverses everything that was broken about them. You see these stories where um, people who would have been thought of as the enemies of Israel, like the Samaritans and the Romans, are being brought in. And Jesus is breaking down all sorts of cultural divides that wouldn't have existed in, in a shalom state. One of the things that happens in Luke's gospel is he is pointing out the women who are brought in as disciples as well. You know, the story of Mary and Martha. We always think of that story as there's a busybody lady and a lady who's got her priorities straight. But that's not really what that story is about. That story is about you have Mary who is sitting with Jesus' disciples at his feet as if she was an equal as the disciples. And Martha is upset at her for that. And you said, no, no, she's a disciple as well. You see these, these divisions that have been built up over cultural norms instead being reversed and people being brought back into the shalom state. You see chaotic creation in the form of storms being calmed. And then ultimately, the most important aspect is that you see Jesus restoring the shalom between us and God. He goes to the cross with our sins and pays the penalty that we deserved. And by doing that, we are brought into right relationship with God. And so the ministry of Jesus is called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is essentially a kingdom that reestablishes shalom on earth. It takes all the broken pieces and reweaves them back together. Humans to God, humans to creation, humans to one another. Let's put them back in a state of flourishing, delight, and justice together. That's what Jesus is all about. Which then brings us to the question, what does that mean for us? So when Jesus dies, he resurrects, he lives on the earth for 40 days, he tells his disciples, hey, you guys are going to go out and you're going to extend the kingdom now. But wait for the Holy Spirit. When they get the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, all of the symbolism, all of the moments of the event, all the stuff that happens, it is all trying to drive home for the disciples that you are now the temple of God. You are now the people of the temple. Where people access God is now through you. You are now the representation to the world of what it's like to be in a harmonious relationship with God. You are now uh, an on-display thing to the world. And it is trying to enforce for them that, you know, if the temple was where shalom could be known in, uh, in part, now within the church, within the individuals of the church and the church as a whole, that's actually now where shalom takes place. Those people are the people of shalom. And the disciples, understanding this and knowing this, they then went out into the world. They extended the kingdom of God. They called people into repentance and reestablishment of relationship with God. But they also took up the ethical standards, not just in part of what Israel did, but in perfection, where Israel could not. And they extended that. That's why when you read your Bible, if you read your New Testament, there is always, you know, the epistles are always, okay, because of who you are in Christ, this is how you should live. This is what your community should look like. This is how you guys are supposed to think about things. It is taking up kind of the ethical ideas from the Old Testament, saying, okay, this is what 
the people of Shalom now look like. And so they went out into the world, and they went and rewove Shalom. And that's the same call to us. The idea here is that because we are in that same lineage, we are supposed to be people who reweave Shalom into the world. And Shalom needs to be our guiding values for how to think about the world. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we see, everything we, how we approach our life needs to be viewed at through the grid of Shalom. So we're, we're going to talk about what that looks like in a second, but I can, I'm going to address some objections right off the bat. So when you start to do and really get serious about Shalom, some tendencies you'll see in Shalom are this. You will see that Shalom is generous. You will see that it is gracious. You will see that it is merciful. You see it's not trying to find a winner and a loser, but it's trying to be something that works for everybody. And because it is all those things, it is going to be unwise by worldly standards. It is going to open you up to being taken advantage of and put you in a place of vulnerability, and you will have to have less uh, because you know, you're allowing everyone to flourish. And it will be easy to feel like, okay, well, I don't, why would I do any of that? But everything I just said could also be a description of how God is with our sin. You know, if God wanted to be wise by worldly standards when we sin, you would sin and then a lightning bolt would hit you. And then he would be done with it and it's not his problem anymore, right? That's how he would handle that if it was about just the most efficient way to deal with that problem. And instead what God does is he says, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to draw them to myself. I'm going to uh, show them kindness that will lead them to uh, to repentance, and God is okay with being taken advantage of by sinners for the long-term goal, and Shalom has that same sort of idea at heart, and what's going on with that is that so much of the Bible is talking about you being conformed to the image of God again, you starting to reflect God again, and this is what it's talking about. You know, it's not just that you, I mean, it is things like love, joy, uh, but peace, right? <laughs> like patience, like those ideas are much bigger than just like, oh, I'm, I don't, I don't like get angry at people, right? Like it's a much bigger, broader concept than that. And the, the second thing about this is, yeah, it will be tough. It's, it's not going to be easy. But the thing about shalom is if you start to live it out, it works because you are no longer living in fear. You are living in faith, right? That's at the core of it. You have to instead trust God. You have to rely on the words of Moses. Moses said, hey, God has declared there will be no poor amongst us. This is the same story. God has declared when shalom is woven together, yeah, there are going to be all sorts of different logistical problems. I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of them. I got it. Don't worry. Just trust me. Just live in faith. Just live in my arms. Just live on my path. Just walk the way that I would have you walk. Don't worry about all the other stuff. I will sort all of that kind of thing out. You don't have to deal with that. You just have to know that I've declared those things, and because I've declared those things, they will happen. So with that in mind, kind of the bigger kind of practical applications of this. So at a, at a really big macro level, one, one distortion that has creeped into just the modern Western American church is you don't see this around the world. You don't see this in any historic Christianity. But it is the idea that all that matters is where you go when you die. And then the twin of that is that all of this is just going to burn, so who cares what happens to it? And that is just inconsistent with everything about Eden, with about Jesus' ministry, and with the early church, right? They were very much concerned with what was happening to people now. Yes, it was about salvation. It was about reconciling people to God, but it was also about reconciling people to one another. The cross has two beams. It is a vertical reconciliation and a horizontal reconciliation, 
And this is why Jesus says, you cannot separate love of God from love of neighbor. And in fact, your love of neighbor is really an indicator of your love of God. And if you want to look at that from the shalom lens, you have to go, if I have shalom with God, if I have been rewoven back together with God, I am supposed to be reweaving other people together back to God and reweaving this creation back the way that God would want it to be. There is a vertical and horizontal aspect to all of this, which then means your American values, the myths and cultural narratives of America, are going to come in direct conflict with the shalom values. They will not work together. They cannot go together. And you cannot compartmentalize yourself in a way that say, I can have both. They are direct odds with one another. And so the myths and cultural narratives of America are ideas like, it doesn't matter what happens to other people as long as it doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter what happens to other people as long as I don't have to see it or I don't know anybody affected by it. It doesn't matter what happens to other people as long as things are cheaper for me and I can have all the things I want and that's happening across the world and all of that kind of stuff. And Shalom would say, no, no, if we are trying to have flourishing and justice and delight for everybody, it very much matters what happens to everybody. It very much matters what's going on across the world. It very much matters even though you're not affected by it. You know, the American myth is that all that matters is I get mine. And the shalom, good news, is that, no, it matters what happens to everybody. God is concerned about everything. And so what that's going to do is that it's going to force you to have to wrestle with what kinds of things you buy, how you think, you know, what things you value, right? Like, you're, you're gonna, there are going to be products that are ultimately as cheap as they are and built upon the exploitation of children in sweatshops, right? There are going to be products that they are the way they are, but behind the scenes, there are wars being fought over them. There are uh, deforestation or tribes going at war with one another. The one I'm trying to describe is coffee, right? Because that's a central one for me, right? There are coffees that are grown ethically, and there are coffees that are grown at the exploitation of other people, right? And if you really care about shalom, you have to go, okay, can I continue to support that? You know, one, another myth of America is that all that matters is that I'm safe and secure. It doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. And yeah, that might be a way to think politically, that might be a way to run a country, but it doesn't jive with shalom. It doesn't match the heart intention of shalom, and we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what kinds of things can I support? What kinds of values can I care about? What kinds of things can I promote? And here, here's what I'm getting at. Chances are you are not in a position of power to solve any of these big major crises in the world. The point is to say, what is my heart behind those things? What are my values behind those things? Are my values fear? Are my values uh, American values? Are my values the myths and the cultural narratives that are out there? Or are my values shalom? And that's really what God is concerned with because he wants you to start taking steps towards restoring the, the shalom of the world. He wants to move us in that direction. And so what that means is that there are going to be times where we're going to have to say, yeah, we can't, we can't support that anymore. It does not mean flourishing for everybody. It does not mean justice for the least of these. It does not mean uh, delight for everybody. And we have to take on missions that we go, yeah, that doesn't directly affect me, but it directly affects that group of people. And I need to care about that group of people because they are the least of these. This is why pro-life can't just be what happens to unborn babies. It has to be what happens to everybody. You have to think God's vision for everybody is flourishing and justice and delight for all, and so we need that for all, which then I want to make one final point. The thing about the way the Bible ends, the way the Bible ends is that you have a vision of 
the new heavens and the new earth, which are really a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And the new Jerusalem is coming down. And at the center of the new Jerusalem is the, the, the tree of life flowing out to heal the nations. You know, there's a river going through it to heal the nations. And it is this picture where God says, the dwelling place of man is with God. I have wiped away every tear. I have wiped away every, every uh, iniquity. I have healed everything. I have made everything right. I have restored everything right. It is a picture that shalom is being fully rewoven together. Things will be back to the way they are supposed to be. And John sees this as a vision that he tells us about to let us know, hey, things are messed up out there. Things are broken out there. But one day, everything is going to be made right. And you have to keep that in your mind in an ultimate sense. But in a now sense, it is trying to say, hey, God, there's nothing that is too broken for God. There is no person that is too broken for God. There is no situation that is too broken for God. There is no world that is too broken for God. God is going to fix it all in an ultimate sense, so he can fix it also here in a here and now sense as well. And shalom, as a study, what it is trying to do, it is, in, is trying to invite us into that realization for ourselves. Anne Lamott has one of her, her novels, and she has uh, these characters discussing things, and she, they are saying to one another, the Japanese have a proverb, what sound does rain make? And the answer to that is it doesn't make a sound till it hits something. And then they ask themselves, what sound does grace make? And the answer is, it doesn't make a sound till it hits anything. And the invitation of shalom is to step out into the rain and let God wash the brokenness away and in its place, reweave you back together with him, with your community, with your creation, and to say, I'm putting things new. I am making you the way that you're supposed to be. And we have to step into that and let God's grace wash over us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the vision of shalom that you give to all of us. Lord, we know that you love this world. We know that you love us. We know that you are committed to this world, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to reweave shalom uh, wherever it needs to be rewoven. And if that means that we have to repent of things, Lord, we pray that we would repent. If that means we have to step out and take and extend the kingdom to others, we pray that we would be willing to do that, Lord. And we pray that as we go into this time of worship, you would really impress upon our hearts what you're trying to say to us out of shalom. In your name, amen. But I'd like to read for you um, Isaiah 32, verses 16 through 18 to close us out. But this is from uh, a theologian who writes about shalom. So if you would all close your eyes and open out your hands to receive the blessing, this is what he says, or his translation, I should say. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. The effects of righteousness will be shalom, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a home of shalom, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So with that, I send you out into the world in shalom.